In a world where uncertainty reigns supreme, where shadows of chaos dance at every turn, one truth emerges unyielding. Preparation is not a luxury, but a lifeline. Behold the Wellness Company, a beacon of readiness amidst the tempestuous seas of fate. Envision a sanctuary of tranquility, where the tumult of unforeseen medical crises finds no purchase. The Wellness Company's Medical Emergency Kit stands as a bastion of assurance, a fortress of resilience against the unseen foes of health. Within its sacred confines lie the tools of salvation. Ivermectin, to ward off the insidious whispers of disease. Emergency antibiotics, to quell the raging storms of infection. Antivirals, to vanquish the relentless tides of contagion and more. The Wellness Company Medical Emergency Kit is not merely a collection of supplies. It is the embodiment of preparedness itself. Crafted by the hands of esteemed healers led by luminaries such as Dr. Peter McCullough, Dr. James Thorpe, Dr. Harvey Risch, and Dr. Drew Pinsky, this kit stands as the pinnacle of safety, the zenith of prevention. These truth-seeking doctors have forged a testament to vigilance, a testament to the unwavering pursuit of well-being. Embrace the certainty that comes from being armed against adversity. Embrace the Wellness Company, for in its embrace lies the promise of resilience, the promise of a brighter tomorrow amidst the chaos of today. Don't wait for the next crisis to strike. Visit twc.health forward slash strange planet and use promo code strange planet for an exclusive 10% discount. Prepare today and rest easy tomorrow. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. On this episode, the great-great-grandson of a legendary outlaw discusses how Jesse James faked his death, moved to Texas, and left a map leading to buried treasures all across America. When he died, half his children didn't go to the funeral. They stayed home and dug up the yard looking for his gold. This podcast is brought to you by Paranormal Contractors. If you have unwanted paranormal activity in your home or business, this is no time to be dealing with amateurs. It's time to bring in the professionals. Paranormal Contractors utilize the latest, most sophisticated technology to investigate, authenticate, and remediate your ghost or demon problem. Call them right now at 631-552-5835. 631-552-5835. Again, 631-552-5835. Or email them at paranormalcontractors at gmail.com and tell them Richard sent you. Check out their YouTube channel, Paranormal Contractors, for things that go bump in the night. Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Pursuing the truth wherever it leads. Exposing evil and corruption and the secret machinations of powerful elites. Revealing the high strangeness beneath the surface of our supposed reality. Coming to you from his studio beneath the stairs. Here's Richard Serrett. Welcome to your Friday. You're about to meet the great-great-grandson of the outlaw Jesse James. He'll be here to talk about the secret diaries and coded treasure maps Jesse left behind. First, one final reminder that I'll be hosting Coast to Coast AM tomorrow, Saturday, July the 6th. If you're new to Coast and you're not sure where to find the show in your area, go to coasttocoastam.com and then find the affiliates page to locate a radio station near you that carries this amazing late-night, overnight radio program. Daniel J. Duke grew up surrounded by stories of lost outlaw treasures. For more than two decades, he's researched the mysteries involving his family, Freemasonry, and the Knights Templar. In his book, Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, he reveals hidden treasures yet to be recovered, as well as connections between the infamous train robber and Freemasonry, the Knights Templar, the Founding Fathers, and even Jewish mysticism. Daniel Duke, welcome to Conspiracy Unlimited. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. Thank you for having me. Before we get into the maps and the treasures and the and the masons and all of that. What did you hear growing up about your great-great-grandfather? 
Well, all my life I grew up hearing that he was, my great-great-grandfather was Jesse James and that he had faked his death and lived out the rest of his days in Texas. He died in 1943 at the age of 97. But as a but as a man, what did you hear? I mean, we hear yes, he was an outlaw, he was a train robber. Some say he was a bit of a Robin Hood. Uh, what did I what did you hear about all of those? All of those uh, that he was a Robin Hood. He robbed from the rich and and gave to the poor. That was a lot of the the legend about him anyway. But but in the family, you know, they just said yeah, he was America's Robin Hood, and uh, he was a robber. But it was because of the war, and. Uh, that that was the basics of it. They didn't go too deep into it, and I think a lot of the relatives were worried that some of their sons or grandsons might try something, you know, do something dumb and end up trying to live up to that name. So they kind of kept it low-key in a lot of cases. And, and that, we, you, you mentioned, uh, you know, the, the Civil War, and he was obviously very pro-Confederate. Um, is that how the... the um, the gang started the James Younger gang based coming out of the the bushwhackers, uh, this guerrilla you know outfit that were supporting the uh, the Confederates. Exactly. Well, the war in Missouri, the Civil War, a lot of people have said started on that on the border between Kansas and Missouri. Um, there was a lot of fighting there for years, like ten years before the Civil War started, and just back and forth guerrilla raids and. They, they, a lot of them, including the Youngers, whose family supported the North originally until their father was killed, murdered by uh, some Union guerrillas. And that switched, you know, that, that turned them against that, and they ended up going and fighting alongside Quantrill's guerrillas. Um, so there was a mix of beliefs and, you know, political beliefs. It, it turned into more of a, they were defending their property, their hometown, their family, that kind of thing, and uh, you know, it was that war. It was brother against brother in a lot of cases. So yes, I'm, I'm sure it was terrible, but um, it wasn't so much the Confederacy as getting revenge. You know, it was a lot of teenage. Jesse was 14 when he started. He he started. He his uh, Frank had already gone and joined the Confederacy, the legitimate Confederacy, and uh, some guerrillas came. You know, from Kansas rode in. Jesse was working in the field at their family farm. They strapped him to a plow and brutally beat him. Then they rode on to his, his mother's house, pushed her around. She was pregnant at the time, whipped her, and hung his stepfather from a tree. So, you know, a 14-year-old boy in those days, um, he, he wanted revenge. And so he rode out and found the, the, a group who would let him ride at that young age, and it was Quantrill's guerrillas. And... and uh, the um, the reputation of uh, you know the embodiment of Robin Hood robbing from the rich, giving to the poor. Is there any evidence to to, to back that up? I mean, did he share his loot from the robberies with any sort of anyone outside his his close kinship network? There's there were a lot of little stories like that. A lot of some of them are hard to verify. Well, most of them, um, like the the story of a widow who owed money on her taxes, and the tax collector was coming to, to you know, collect or take her property. Uh, she gave her last, the last bit of money she needed, and they, they were said to have robbed the tax collector and took the money back to the widow, um, which, you know, I think a lot of people might do that. More people then would have done that at the, in those days than now, I guess, but, uh, yeah, the, that's just one case, and I'm not even sure if that really happened or if it was just a legend. Um, I I know he gave and helped people when they need it, but I, there's really no proof of it. And and what was he like as a person? Was he quick to anger? Was he uh, gentle? What what was he like? Do you know? When he was young, I think he had a, a, quite a temper, um, but in a way, it was if if someone pushed him, then he would blow up, and you know. His, lose his temper but from what I had heard of him he had a dry sense of humor and he was fairly easy going he was calm he didn't jump to the gun you know jump to his gun um, when he, he he would and he also um, kind of kept a low profile 
even here in Texas. I mean, he didn't. He wasn't. He wasn't a braggart. He didn't. He didn't like to party, and uh, he just lived on his farm and did his thing. Kept quiet and was very secretive. So the uh, the James Younger gang, I guess, at their peak, they were active for about what ten years following the Civil War, right? About just about ten years. They yeah they were they were active for well closer it was it was about fifteen years. Ah. And what was their, I mean, did they have a particular methodology that set them apart from other, let's say, train robbers? Uh, I mean, when they pulled a heist or a bank robbery, was there something different about the James Younger gang? They, well, yeah, there was quite a bit. They didn't rough people up. They, when they got on a train and were, you know, when they were robbing a train, if they took money from the passengers, they would check people's hands. And they, they saw that if, if a man had looked like he, he worked for a living and had calloused, rough hands, they wouldn't take his money. Uh, they only wanted money from, from, I guess, bankers and people with desk jobs. Um, I probably would have been included, and I would have lost my wallet. So. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, they also... Uh, it was said by many that ladies would ask for his autograph after while he was robbing the train. Well, that's interesting. Yeah, I thought it was almost like a a, a rock star in a way. Right, right. It's interesting because you know that we tend to think of that that period of you know the Wild West or lawlessness as going on forever, as uh, you know because Gunsmoke ran for twenty five years at least. But yeah. that, that period in America's history was pretty short-lived, actually, wasn't it? It was. I think of it as a, a short window of chaos, you know, following the war. I think the, the war creates a lot of chaos, and, and I think that, that was the opportunity for a lot of characters to shine or, or, or you know, make their name known. Now, the, the official version is that... Uh, Jesse was killed by a member of his own gang who was looking to cash in on uh, on some reward money. Um, a gentleman by the name of was it Bob Ford? Yes. Uh, Bob. Why? Why? Why do you say? And you're certainly not alone. There are others who have other theories. But why do you uh, argue that that simply did not happen? That's not the case. The the traditional story says, you know, they, that Bob and Charlie Ford were working undercover for the governor of Missouri at the time to bring Jesse to an end in one way or another. Um, they, that, 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 that story is just, it falls apart when you dig into it deeper. Uh, my mother had spent 20 years research, my late mother, had spent 20 years, over 20 years, researching and debunking those theories, and she did a great job at it in three books. Uh, she disproved their DNA, the exhumation for DNA in 1995 that they did, but the, um, the family photos were the biggest reason at the beginning for, for not believing the historical, you know, other than the family lore. We wanted to know once and for all, did, is our family story true, or is the historical version true? And so we started gather, gathering evidence and had it uh, verified by forensic experts, three separate forensic experts, and they verified that our family photos of Jesse and his family members match their, fa you know, their family photos. So uh, known, accepted photos of Jesse and his family members. So we've got you know photos of Frank, Jesse... Uh, his father-in-law, our stepfather, um, Reuben Samuel, and his mother, Zerelda, and they all match. I mean, on Zerelda, it's down to the same print of the dress. She's wearing the same dress in both photos. Hmm. Uh, and they matched the print. So there's a lot. I mean, this, and these weren't just experts. These were highly credentialed experts. The Texas Department of Public Safety Forensic Lab, Austin Police Department Forensic photo, Photographic Forensic Lab, and a company at the time named Visionics, who were world leaders in facial recognition technology, who were later bought out by a company called Identix. But they and we didn't pay them. They did this as a you know for free. 
they had no bias and no reason to to you know rule in our favor but that's how it came out so so and, the theory so the theory goes that he he faked his death uh, now, how was that pulled off? Was was Ford working for the Pinkertons? Was he a Pinkerton man? I don't believe he was working for the Pinkertons. It, there's a lot of if there's a lot of questions involved in all that, but the uh, he was basically working for the governor of Missouri because well, the, all the bank robberies had gotten to such an, an ex, such a high level. It was it was uh, well, they were trains were trying to reroute around Missouri instead of going through it. That's how bad it was. <laughs> yeah, it, it was getting bad. So, uh, you know, they, the governor wanted that ended. It was hurting their economy. And the, the, the Ford boys were, I guess, called in for that job. Um, just because they, they were from that area. And law, lawmen like the Pinkertons and other law enforcement couldn't, they, had, they couldn't get them. They could not get the James King. And they couldn't even identify. They didn't even know who exactly what Jesse looked like, uh, which is another reason it made it so easy for him to pull off the death hoax. Ah, okay. See, in 1879, a lot of people don't re- realize that in 1879, Jesse had tried to fake his death once before. Oh, he uh, had. Yes, and, and uh, he and uh, one of his gang members, George Shepard, they came up with a plan to fake his death, you know, tell it so so that he could, he wanted out. He wanted a peaceful life. He just, you know, and, it, it was, he was in a trap. It, I guess he had helped build for himself in a way, but um, they 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 shot. They used some blood from an animal they had killed. I believe it was a deer, and left a little blood trail. And George went into town and claimed that he killed Jesse, and they couldn't find a body, so it didn't fall through. Um, nobody really believed it. They weren't sure, and then they just thought, no, it, it's you know it's not true. He's still alive. So it didn't work. The second time, in 1882, I, I don't believe Jesse planned it. It was his first cousin, Wood Height, who was killed and passed off as Jesse. He was the one hanging the picture when Bob Ford shot him. Yes. And I don't believe he was hanging a picture when that happened. Uh-huh. I don't think it happened in that house. It may not have happened in the house. See, Bob uh, Wood Height was Jesse's first cousin and was said to have closely resembled Jesse. He was known as a ladies' man. He had an affair, allegedly, with the Ford brother's sister, Martha Bolton. And that while Martha had a farmhand named Jim, I can't remember his last name right now. Well, Jim, there was, there was some kind of love triangle going on. And um, I think he was jealous of Wood. There was a fight. A fight ensued. Both men died in the fight, Wood Height and Jim. And that is... And that happened about a month, a little over a month before the alleged death happened on, you know, in early April. So, uh, but it was cold, the ground was frozen, so a body would have been preserved well. Or they could have kept it in an ice house even after the cold snap, you know, disappeared. So, anyway, they used the body of Wood Height and, and passed it off as Jesse. And, and how, did they, how did they buy off Bob Ford? I, he may have been involved in it. He may have been scared to death. I don't know. Or maybe he could have thought that, in a way, this is a wild theory, and it, it's just a, a out there possibility. Maybe he and Charlie thought Wood was actually Jesse. Mm. Or that, that's, that's maybe maybe of, he was double dipping. Maybe he took the money from the governor, and he also took the money from Jesse. Maybe so. He may have been trying to play a game. I don't know. I think, I have a tendency to believe that he was being loyal to Jesse. I don't think Wood Heights' death was, was planned. It just happened because convenient. of the, you know, the fight. Yeah. yeah, but it turned out convenient. Jesse was in Texas when that happened. His, you know, he was about to have his, you know, his first daughter, and uh, or she was about to be born, and he... Uh, But he rode up there for the funeral because we've recently found a photo of him standing next to Zerelda at the funeral. Oh, is that right? Yes, and he—it's—it's our great—it's my great great grandfather standing there looking at the casket. Uh, Several weeks after he was supposedly dead. Yes. Isn't well? That's the smoking gun. No pun intended. Yes, it is. That—that's one of them. My mother. 
wrote it. Her third book was titled The Smoking Gun, and that was from another photograph <laughs> we'd had. And uh, of uh, Frank, Frank, and when Frank got married, it happened. They were there was a wedding photo taken in Blevins, Texas, at my great great grandfather's house. And it's jet, and on it was an old. It was used as an old postcard in the past, um, showing Jesse and his whole family. Jesse, Frank, Frank's new wife, and the whole family and friends in the background. And again, and Frank, re- Frank James, that marriage, uh, his second marriage, was how long after the supposed death of Jesse? For some reason, that slipped my mind. But it's all you know. It's post eighteen eighty two. Yes. So according, I mean, I've read different versions. One has. Jesse faking his death and moving to Oklahoma, where he lived under the name of, I think it was Frank Dalton. And in your version, he moves to Texas and lives out his life under the name of James L. Courtney. So how do we track him to Texas? And uh, how do we know James L. Courtney was your great-grandfather, Jesse? Okay, we track him to Texas. We have his diary from 1871 to 1876. It was actually more like a day book. He didn't talk about his feelings or, or thoughts. He just wrote the facts. But he, uh, he, we have the diary that shows that you know he, he it, when he was entering Texas is when he's starting that diary, uh, which is was a great bit of a piece, huge in, information for us. Not only that, he mentions a lot of known gang members in the diary. Um, Bill Wilkerson being one, and there were several others. Bud, Bud Singleton, and some some others he even mentions bud a man named bud not singleton a different bud which was a nickname they had for cole younger um there are trips he would document that they went on him and his friends and you know he would name some of the gang members but they were they like one for example they went to louisiana they went to shreveport louisiana took a steamboat down to uh natchitish as I, i think is i'm not pronouncing that correct correctly i think it's natchitish it looks like natchitoches but anyway they went to that town and then took a road and rode back north and anyway on the whole trip there there the the same steamship they were on was robbed if you you know looking at the the uh, uh newspaper accounts of the day and comparing that to the dates of his trip it, he they were they robbed the steamship they robbed a stage, and then another part of the gang robbed a, another stage in the northern part of Louisiana at the same time. And then they returned home. I think he used the day book for different reasons, but one reason could, could have been a cover story. If somebody were to catch him, here's his day book with right. his name and events. More of my conversation with Daniel J. Duke, great-great-grandson of the outlaw Jesse James, when Conspiracy Unlimited continues. It's Friday, and that means a visit from Christian D. Kadir. But today, we're going to talk about Reverse Speech Radio. This is a podcast that Christian co-hosts with David John Oates, the discoverer of reverse speech. Hey, Christian, welcome back to Conspiracy Unlimited. Thanks, Richard. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Reverse Speech Radio. Tell us about it. Where do we find it? Reverse Speech Radio is an exciting program that we've launched, and it's uh, it's doing quite well. You can find it on the Libsyn platform, as well as on Facebook and, uh, and YouTube as well. So, uh, once a week, we drop our new episodes uh, every Thursday. The premise here is that you're taking clips from politicians, serial killers, celebrities. We hear what they're saying forwards. You play them backwards. You slow it down. And we hear what are called the reversals. Explain what these reversals reveal. Well, reverse speech is a technology which was founded by David John Oates. And the reversals that we are finding are coming from the unconscious portion of the human mind. It is absolutely amazing because it's what I refer to as a natural truth serum. You cannot hide from reverse speech. So let's give people a taste of this. So for this week and for the next several weeks, we're going to be playing reversals from Jimmy Savile, who was a BBC television presenter. Tell us a little bit about who this notorious character was. Jimmy Savile is the Prince of Darkness. This world that we live in could not get rid of Jimmy Savile soon enough. He was just a horrible human being. 
that is responsible for hundreds of molestation of young underage girls, as well as uh, accusations of uh, necrophilia. He was just a bad person. However, his career started in the BBC, uh, and he ran and hosted uh, as a music disc jockey first, then with the BBC uh, Top of the Pops, and then Jim will fix it. And from approximately 1975 to uh, 1994, that's when Jim will fix it ran, and Top of the Pops was right up till 2006. And now shortly after he died, all the accusations started, began, and then the investigation and the inquiries uh, also began. This guy was basically a monster. So we're going to play a clip here, and this is Jimmy Savile, British television presenter, and we'll hear the, the forward speech, and then we'll hear the reversal three times, each time slowed down a little bit more. All right, here's Jimmy Savile. My, my talent... I managed to actually make a living out of having girls stopping in bed. And that was a secret of Jim will fix it. And it's a great way to live. Jimmy Savile talking uh, to an interviewer. And he's talking about his ability, it sounded like, to get women into bed with him. And then yeah. in the reversal, it's quite obvious to me I don't need any prompting. He's saying molest them. Yep, it's right there. To all your listeners, anyone who has any doubt regarding Jimmy Savile, it's right there. He's admitting it. Molest them. His unconscious mind is specifically stating that he molested and had inappropriate relationships with hundreds of underage young girls. And uh, that was uh, how he said the secret to uh, Jim will fix it. He was a procurer of underage children, boys and girls, not just girls, but boys and girls, to individuals within the BBC and within the elite. New episodes drop every Thursday. Christian, we'll speak to you next week and we'll hear some more clips from Jimmy Savile. You bet. Thanks so much, Richard. Reverse Speech Radio, a podcast dedicated to telling you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. For more information, go to reversespeech.ca or listen and subscribe at reversespeechradio.libsen.com. As you're staring up at the night sky, ever wonder who's staring back? No, me either. But I guess you better say it because of Richard, you know, he's all wrapped up in this stuff. <laughs> Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett. Daniel J. Duke, the author of Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure, is here. So when James Courtney was living out his days in Texas, uh, I mean, Jesse James had been involved in, you know, many shooting shootouts. He had, there was an attempted hanging. I think he had a rope scar around his neck. Uh, did James Courtney tick all those boxes? He, I don't know about the rope scar. That, that deals more with J. Frank Dalton. And Dalton was, my mother had debunked that thoroughly in her second book. Um, called, it, it was titled The Truth About Jesse James. Um, he, Dalton knew a lot, knew more than anybody else should have on a lot of that stuff, dealing with Jesse and, and some of the things that were never published. But he got a lot of that after, after he didn't even come out saying he was Jesse until after my great-great-grandfather died. Then he came out with it, but he was in a... my. My uh, my great grandmother, Jesse's da daughter, Ida, she lived in Marble Falls, Texas. Well, while she was living there, J. Frank Dalton was staying in the Roper Hotel across the street from her house, and he would go over and talk to her all the time. And she got to asking him why he was talking to her so much, and uh, he was looking for information. She ended up missing after. After he left town, she noticed she was missing a lot of papers and stuff that she had from her her dad, Jesse. Uh. So I think he stole, he may have stolen a lot of information, or perhaps one of her children sold him some of it. Right. But but was it common knowledge when James Courtney was living in Texas up until, up and, up until his late 90s, was it common knowledge that he was probably Jesse James? 
Yes, all the people in his area, all um, they know the story. They they would repeat it. Um, people we interviewed, oh, a lot of them are gone now, but a lot of the people we interviewed who were elderly, who knew him, they were children when Jesse was an old older man. Uh, they they knew it. They said they everybody knew it. They just didn't talk about it because every a lot of people were scared of him. They knew that you know he wasn't gonna come hunt them down. But then they were he had he had made enough of an impression on people to just try to keep away from his property and leave him alone. <laughs> right, right. Do we know where James L. Courtney is buried? Yes, in a Blevins Cemetery. It's south of Waco. Was there any consideration given to exhuming the body and doing a DNA? We tried, and uh, we, we went to a court in Falls County, and half of our family fought the exhumation. The other half, you know, my, my side of the family was for it. Mom, of course, was, and so we all were. But distant relatives who were descended from Jesse also said it was a, a violation of the sanctity of the grave. Yet they had no problem exhuming their own their Jesse's father-in-law, who was a Texas Ranger. He they exhumed him and moved him to Fort Fisher, Waco, in, or near Fort Fisher, Waco, in Waco, which was a Texas Ranger. It's now the Texas Ranger Hall of Fame. They had no problem exhuming, and his name was Thomas Hudson Barron. They had no problem exhuming Barron, but they then turn around and claim it's a violation of the sanctity of, of the grave. Some of, some of them knew something, and they were, they were trying to hide it. They, were, they knew who he was. They wanted to hide it. And I think theirs dealt more with money. Okay. So now we get into the, uh, the, the hidden gold, the Confederate gold, and uh, hidden, you know, and, his, and, and uh, Jesse James treasure maps and so forth. Um, first of all, the the uh, the stash of Confederate gold. The idea that was that was to fund a second civil war is that the idea? That that was what the KGC's stated or alleged goals were to fund a second civil war and you know try to win it the next time. And when you say KJC, that's this this is the Knights of the Golden Circle. This is this secret society. John Wilkes Booth was supposedly uh, a member. Um, but you say that your great-great-grandfather was not really affiliated with the the Knights of the Golden Circle, correct? It's hard to say whether he was or not. During the war, it wouldn't have shocked me at all. But I don't think they played a big role in this, if if any, in the treasures that, that I'm talking about. They may have, or perhaps it was someone inside the, the Knights of the Golden Circle finding out, you know, how much they had, what they had, and where it was so they, they could get it and take it from them. I could see that happening, especially if it's known that their goal is to fund a second civil war. You know, you could see some subversive activities, or you could imagine some. I can't prove that, but I've never seen any proof that Jesse or Albert Pike were members of the Knights of the Golden Circle. A lot of people like to lump them in there just because it's convenient and not many people know much about it, so it's easy to do, you know. As, as with any secret society, it's kind of easy to lump them in and not have any resistance because there's really no, there's, there's no, not much information. Right, it's all speculation. Yes. Um, so, you're saying that, that uh, Jesse had these hidden treasures and the maps uh, were, were the, the treasures were coded into his maps. And, and this has more to do not with the KGC, but with the Freemasons and the Knights Templars and the treasure of the Temple Mount. I mean, exactly. which it sounds like your great-great-grandfather was a very, almost a very scholarly gentleman. He had, he, he used sacred geometry Gematria? Where did he get all this knowledge? Well, I know to begin with, his father was an ordained Baptist minister and also one of the founders of William Jewell College. So he came from a, a good family and, and educated. You know, his, his dad was well-educated. Um, Zerelda was an extremely smart lady. And she was, they, 
they weren't um, like rough pioneer. T- you know, the type a lot of people think of pioneers as rough and um, not very learned, but you, you know that kind of attitude. They, these people had an education, and uh, he didn't get much time in school because of the Civil War. But at the same time, he was a very intelligent man, and I think as for the other. The, the rest of his knowledge, it, it came through the Freemasons. After he had, you know, he had changed his name, he changed his life, and was doing his best to, and he did a great job. He lived as, the rest of his life as a peaceful man, so he had time to pursue other, you know, Freemasonry and learn all, the, all everything he could. So, I think there's more to it that I'll never know, but there's a lot of questions in there that I'll, I may never know the answers to, but... It, it goes, it has ties with the Freemasons. So, uh, as James Courtney, is that when he put these maps together to uncover the uh, the buried treasure, the Confederate gold? Under that alias is when he made all the, all the maps that I know of. Uh, he may have made a few before. He may have had access to, to free, Freemasonic influences before, even during the war. For example... He fought with Quantrell's guerrillas. Quantrell's, um, Albert Pike, his area, he commanded the area of the Indian Territory, which is just south of, you know, Louisiana, I mean, of uh, Missouri and Kansas. And Quantrell and his whole band ranged from North Texas all the way to Missouri. So it's easy to conceive the idea, and knowing that Jesse was one of the deadliest guerrillas in the group, it's easy to conceive the idea that he could have bumped into Albert Pike. So, so, uh, so I don't. Okay. I'm so sorry. tell me about the encoded map technique that your great 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 grandfather used. He, in his diary and on the map that we have, he uh, he he would write codes. They were it, it was real simple codes. Um, not they weren't at first they looked confusing, but I I realized you just add you know you know kind of like geometry. The letter A is the number one. The letter Z is the number 26. Um, he would write it, he would reverse that in some cases and just play with it, but he would write, the, he would write numbers, and, sim, and it was rarely symbols. It was numbers mixed with letters, and then you would, I would just play with the alphabet, and you could spell out the word. I mean, it was, it was pretty simple. The problem, the hard part, is locating where, where that map is is uh, pointing to because it was all geometric designs there was no topography on the map at all or or, or directions you know like follow go to the old oak tree and go 10 paces it, he had nothing like that it was just a geometric design and and a, a lot of numbers and symbols or not the symbols of numbers and letters which were basically spelling out how much he buried in one spot how were these maps uncovered? Who found them? Well, when he died, half his children didn't go to the funeral. They stayed home and dug up the yard looking for his gold. Um, his son, Byron, um, wrote out, drew out the map from the original map for some reason. He drew that map out, and the map that Byron drew is the one we have. Um, now, in his diary... There's a lot of symbols he's written. You know, there's like hearts and an eagle with a heart and things like that. But and he's also got a lot of codes in it. And that's Jesse's original writing. But the the map is is a reproduction made by his son shortly after he died. And how much gold? How many caches of Confederate gold do you think there are throughout America? I think possibly hundreds. Uh, they're ranging in different sizes. There's some that may just be, a, a, you know, like an old mason jar full of coins, whereas others I know are very large and would take heavy equipment to, to extract it and to move it. It's, you know, a lot of gold in some cases. So what is the veil template? What does that mean? Okay, the... Uh, re- Mentioning the Knights of the Golden Circle earlier, uh, there's a map known as the KGC map, or template. Um, And I believe that came, I believe Dalton got his hands on that from 
my great grandmother Ida when when they met when they, they when he was staying near her house in Marble Falls. Um, but to make a long story short, the uh, template was attributed to the KGC. I don't think it's theirs. I think it it was a Masonic design, and I I think it may predate Freemasonry. Uh, the design of the template it may go all the way back to the template, but it it's hard to say exactly where it came from. Uh, I know it it's it came from either Freemasons, Rosicrucians, or possibly the Templar. And and how many maps that can be traced back to your to to Jesse are there floating around out there? Do you suppose? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of there's a lot of maps I've seen. Uh, some originated from him or one of his gang members. Others, and most of those maps don't deal with a template, but you use the template to locate them. I think some maps, like the one that that I have, that we have, is uh, is it's once you get to the spot on the template, then you use that map to pinpoint it. If that makes sense. Sure. But again, I mean, are we talking dozens of maps, hundreds? I don't know about the maps. Maps are, there's a lot of fakes out there. Um, maps from Jesse, I only know of a few. And one dealt with um, a treasure in Oklahoma, and then there's the one we have. But I don't know of too many maps from him. There's another one that's dealt with, uh, there's a third one, actually, that's supposedly located in Colorado near Leadville, Colorado. And have any of these treasures been uncovered? Some have. Um, there's one, used to be one, 12 miles from where I live, near Georgetown, Texas. And it was a very large treasure. Um, Wag- former Attorney General of the state of Texas, Wagner Carr, he, he talked to my mother a lot about Jesse James. He used to be a Dalton supporter until he talked to my mom several for quite a quite a few times um and he 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 believed just you know our story after mom had shown him our evidence well he had his driver show us several locations where large treasures were recovered and then there was another one uh, an older actually i do i'm wrong i keep forgetting george roaming drew a map out for us also and that's what i'm about to get into um those, the ones that, let's see, Wagner Cars Driver showed us several large locations that were recovered. And then around that time, we met an older man named George Roaming. When he was 10, about 10 years old, Jesse was old, you know, he was in his late 80s, early 90s. Actually, or he was in his early 90s. Well, Jesse knew him, knew George, because George had lived not far from him. He swore George to secrecy, swore, he had to swear an oath, and George ended up becoming a Mason himself, so he kept the secret. Um, they buried 680 bars of gold, and George showed, drew a map for my mother and I on where that was, was where they buried it. Um, it was 680 bars of gold, each one weighing 15 pounds. And it took them a day in a, a large wagon that's known as a dray to get to transport the gold to another man's property who Jesse knew. And if they, they met two older men and some children that they had hired about George's age and who dug the hole and they all buried the gold and left. Well, he showed, he drew the map for us. My mother and I went looking for it. We followed his directions perfectly, and it's under a lake now. Oh. A man-made lake, presumably. It's a man-made lake owned by the Corps of Engineer, and it's on uh, Fort Hood property. Oh, my. So, yeah. Let's do the math here. Let's just do the math. So 15-pound bars, so 15 times 16 ounces. uh, Let me see. 16 times 165. (laughs) Anyway, and then how many bars were there? 680. So, times what is it? Fourteen hundred dollars an ounce. I mean, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money, and that's only one treasure. Yeah, that's just one. Why didn't he just? Why did he bury it? Why didn't he give it to his children? 
Well, it wasn't for him. It was it was for the go. It was for Freemasonry, um, and that's where. And I I believe I have a very good answer as to why they did that. Um, I'm not sure if you're ready to go into that yet. Yeah, pl- please. Okay. Well, knowing all this, I wanted you know I. I when I first started this, I thought, good, you know, I'd love to find some treasure. It could pay pay off my student loan, pay off, you know, all all these bills. And just the fun of finding a treasure and knowing it was part of something my ancestor had had buried. And it just, you know, that was exciting. But at the most, I thought, I thought at the beginning, at the most, there may be a saddlebag full of a few coins, you know, and, and it would be that I'd be happy. But, uh as time went on and I started researching and asking why, what, you know, who, what, when, where, and why, and I just kept asking those questions. Each time I found something, it grew bigger, like the stories I just mentioned to you, the 680 bars of gold, and that, that's not, that's far from the largest treasure. Um, so I wanted to find out who did it and why, and I started tracing, I, I thought, okay, it ties in with Freemasonry, there's symbols involved in it that deal with Freemasonry. It seems to tie in with it. I'll, I'll go that way. So I started reading more from Albert Pike and others and connecting in a form kind of like a family tree, only it's more of an organizational tree or from, from Jesse through the Freemasons to the Founding Fathers all the way back to Francis Bacon. Uh, Francis Bacon wrote a book called The New Atlantis which is basically a blueprint for the United States today, or what it was meant to be. Um, and that, I believe, is, is part of a goal that ties in with a, a, an even old... It's the same goal, just... Um, well, the Freemasons, Francis Bacon, he wrote about it, but I think that was a dream for even before Francis Bacon's day. I think, you know, alchemists, Jewish rabbis, Rosicrucians different groups leading all the way back to the Templar, they had all been persecuted at one time or another. They wanted liberty and freedom, a place where they could all, you know, Muslims, Jews, Christians could could sit down and discuss things without having the fear of losing their head or being burned at the stake for not having, uh, you know, not following, I guess, the Catholic Church's rule. Um, they wanted a new nation where they could be free, and I and that's that is what spurred all this. They want, and I think that's what they used a lot of the treasures from. Some of the treasures involved in this, I believe, are a sacred of a sacred nature, going all the way back to the Temple of Jerusalem, which the the Templar had acquired, like the Solomon's Temple. Yes. Hmm. And I believe that the Templar acquired it, you know, and that's been written about in a lot of books, uh, Holy Blood, Holy Grail, and other sources. Right, but, and reportedly buried at Oak Island in Nova Scotia. Yeah, and, and you know, around Rennes-le-Chateau in France, yes. places like that. Um, but it, I think the Holy Blood, Holy Grail book is right, and I think my book is a continuation of that story. I think Oak Island was one of the first contact points they had, or used maybe as a, I think something may be there, I'm not sure, but I think they uh, went from there and branched out over the years across America, or actually the Americas, Canada, the United States, and Mexico. So did Jesse James sort of consider himself a modern-day Templar? I don't know. I never saw in his books where he did, but I... uh, I think I think he was a lot more, and he knew what he. I'm sure you know he knew. I think he may have. I don't see why he wouldn't, but um, he never voiced that. And and so again, ultimately, what did he think that treasure would be used for? I think to to. I think it's to be used to, and maybe he did. I'm not sure what, what he thought, but um, it's to be used to further. And protect well to protect the values that America was founded founded on, you hmm. know, liberty and freedom, basically. Right, right, and maybe pay off some of that enormous debt. Maybe, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe. And in the meantime, Daniel, are you still on the hunt for uh, more coded maps from your great great grandfather? Always, 
Uh, I'm I'm looking at my grandfather's, you know, everything I can on him, um, all the way back to anything from the Templar, any tools or clues or anything I can find. I'm constantly on the hunt for. Well, it's a remarkable story, Jesse James much, much more than just an outlaw and a train robber, it would appear. And I thank you for bringing this story to us. How do people get a hold of Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure? Well, you can go to innertraditions.com. They're my publisher. Or you can just type, you can uh, uh, do an internet search for the title of the book. And there's a lot, you know, that Inner Traditions would show up, Amazon, anywhere books are sold. Jesse James and the Lost Templar Treasure. Daniel, a great delight meeting you. Thank you so much for this. Thank you. It's an honor. Okay, before I dim the lights in my little studio beneath the stairs, I'll be back to tell you what's coming up on the next episode of Conspiracy Unlimited. If you're a fan of this podcast or my weekly radio program, The Conspiracy Show, or my YouTube channel, Strange Planet, I hope you'll consider becoming an official donor. A donation of $50 a month places you in the Star Chamber. $20 a month is the whistleblower tier, and a donation of just $10 per month makes you a truth seeker. Star Chamber and Whistleblower members can participate in an exclusive monthly online chat or video conference with me. And all donors are entered into a monthly draw for Strange Planet merchandise. Any monthly amount is welcome and greatly appreciated. To become an official donor, go to patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Patreon.com forward slash strange planet. Be sure to be listening Monday. Jim Harold, host of Jim Harold's Campfire, drops by with some wonderfully strange tales from his legendary podcast. They're driving along, and lo and behold, they come upon this bar, this roadhouse, and it's open, which usually wouldn't be the case after 2 o'clock in the morning, but they said, let's not look a gift horse in the mouth. So they pull over, and uh, they went in. Bob ordered a couple of drinks, T.I., went and answered the call of nature and came back. And everybody kind of, uh, all the people in there acted kind of strange. They kind of looked at them, but they didn't really talk much with them. They had an old jukebox, a vintage jukebox with vinyl. So a guy plays uh, Chubby Checkers, Let's Twist Again. (laughs) And uh, the guy comes up to T.I. and smiles real big and he has these rotten teeth and it's kind of disgusting. And and he asks T.I. to dance. And she begs off because she has a cane. And she said, actually, in this case, she was glad she had that as a handy excuse. Until then, I'm Richard Serrett. So long for now. A new Conspiracy Unlimited with Richard Serrett drops every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at ConspiracyUnlimitedPodcast.com. Blow your mind. That is all for now. Oh, and remember to share and give a five-star review because we have huge egos and need love. We're like cats. We need... We need constant petting.